thanks Kenneth for leading us uh, in worship and also uh, Lacey and the music team for leading us in the time of singing. Uh, yeah, it's indeed so good to see all of you once again uh, because normally on weekends I'm serving at Basic and uh, Sundays normally I'm at Bishan. So yeah, it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces uh, at Adam. And I'm also looking forward to seeing you, those who are online. Uh, do come back and join us. So um, before I go further, allow me to pray for all of us. Father, we confess that our eyes are blind, our ears are dull, and our hearts are hardened towards you. Please open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your words, for our lives depend on it. Amen. The sermon for today is entitled, Jesus, the Passover Lamb. And the Bible text is taken from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 31. So if you have your Bibles with you, do keep it open so that you can uh, listen and uh, follow along. So special occasions are important to uh, all of us, isn't it? And for the husbands in our midst, uh, perhaps one of the most important dates to note is that of your wife's birthday and your wedding anniversary. Uh, Someone once told me, happy wife, happy life. Uh, that's my wife's uh, words of wisdom to me. So let, let me just ask you, Wesley, do you know when is your uh, Lacey's birthday? When? Uh, you, you hesitated. That's no good. <laughs> anyway, sorry, just kidding. Huh? I'm not trying to sabo him. But when I was a kid, uh, one of the special occasions that I enjoyed the most is the Lunar New Year. Uh, because I enjoy the all-important reunion dinner, you know, and the, the visitation to my extended family, uh, and paying respect to my grandparents. And speaking of grandparents, my paternal grandparents uh, or grandfather has one wife and eight children. And my maternal grandfather had four wives and 20 children. So if you do your math, uh, I have lots of uncles and aunties, and I have cousins whom I know not of. So I wouldn't be surprised some might be sitting, in, in here, sitting here in our midst today as well. Yeah, so can you imagine the ex my excitement as a child? Because that translates to a lot of ang pao's for me, red packets. But pity my, my parents, you know, uh, uh, they don't normally look excited when, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, doing the visitation because I have so many cousins. In a nutshell, the Lunar New Year is a celebration, a cele celebration of family, isn't it? And Mark 14 is set against the backdrop of perhaps the most important occasion on the Jewish calendar, the Passover. It's a time to remember God's rescue of His people. Mark wants us to see the impending death of Jesus from the vantage point of the Passover. As Mark Duff tears the Passover with the climax of the book, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins in chapter 14, verse 1, that it was close to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jerusalem was crowded at the time of the year. And as many of the Jews from the surrounding region, they would all flock into Jerusalem at this time to celebrate the Passover 
So imagine with me, it's a bit like you know, uh, going to Chinatown during Lunar New Year or going down to Geylang Sarai during the Ramadan Bazaar. And guess who is there as well? Jesus and his disciples. And we already know from the Gospel of Mark that the Jewish religious leaders, they hated Jesus because they saw him as a threat. And previously, Jesus was far away. He was in Galilee and the surrounding regions. But now, the problem of Jesus is at their doorstep in Jerusalem. And Mark 11 informs us that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a coat and received a kingly welcome from the crowd. And then Jesus went into the temple and openly challenged the religious leaders' authority on their own turf. When he cleansed the temple, calling it a den of robbers, and this makes them look really bad. They have also feared in their attempts to outwit and out-debate Jesus when they confronted him uh, in public debates. And Jesus' claim to divine authority also means that they view him as a blasphemer. So, first slide. So we see that although the Passover was a time to honour God and to celebrate his goodness, the Jewish religious leader, were, they were plotting to arrest Jesus, the Son of God, by stealth and murder him. Now, why would they have to do it by stealth? You see, Jesus was popular with the crowd, and the religious leaders were fearful of a backlash from the people. And any uproar amongst the Jews in Jerusalem would also make them look like incompetent leaders before the Romans. So they waited for an opportunity to strike, to arrest him away from public's eyes. But in contrast to the religious leader, an unnamed woman seizes the opportunity to honour Jesus. Let's hope I get this right. Okay. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at Thabor, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. You see, it was common for important guests to be anointed at feasts. Of course, it's not practice here, isn't it? But similarly, you know, if you, you're a VIP, you go to a certain place, uh, people will perhaps put a garland over your head, isn't it? But what was extraordinary was the value of the content of the alabaster flask. Mark tells us a few things about its content. First, it contains perfume or ointment. It was made from nard and a uh, uh, plant imported from India. So this is imported goods, expensive. It's pure, meaning it's genuine, it's unadulterated. You know, it's not like your EDT or EDP for perfume. This is pure perfume, okay? And it's very costly. How costly? Verse 5 tells us that it's worth about 300, more than 300 denarii, uh, which is equivalent to almost 10 months of salary. That's a lot of money. But the question is, why would 
this unnamed woman do that? Why would she pour out such expensive perfume on Jesus? Well, I guess it's the same reason why you would splurge on an expensive trip overseas with your family now that the borders are open, right? Everyone's, oh, you know, you will book all the trip overseas. Okay, also the same reason why you would be spending hours waiting for your girlfriend if you're dating or why you would wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning to send your kids to school. Why would a woman do that? It is because of love. It's because she loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, is this like working? And this unnamed woman shows her love and devotion to Jesus by pouring out her best on him as she absolutely thinks that he's worth it. However, what was more shocking than her costly action was the reaction that she received. In verses 4 and 5, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and discarded her. So Mark records for us these verses. And it's interesting. He used the word some. There are some who said to themselves indignantly, who on earth is he referring to? Well, this could include, this psalm could include those who were present at Simon the leper's house, including Jesus' disciples. See, Mark deliberately left the word ambiguous so that Jesus' disciples could, would be in, indistinguishable from the outsiders. So imagine you pour out your best on Jesus and you got scolded by his disciples for such wastage. Now, why would his disciples think that it's a waste pour expensive perfume on Jesus? Well, we know that in the Gospel of John, John recorded for us that it was Judas Iscariot who voiced his displeasure. And not because Judas was concerned for the poor, but John to told us that Judas was a thief and he stole from the money back. So for Judas, it was wasted on Jesus because he couldn't get to pocket the money. The irony is that here in Mark's Gospel, his disciples think that the costly perfume is wasted on Jesus because he's not worthy of such an honour. Of course, we would expect his disciples to honour him, but instead, Mark records for us an unnamed woman honours and values Jesus. And in contrast to the rebuke from the disciples, Jesus approves of her actions. See, ultimately, it is Jesus' approval that matters, isn't it? So Jesus asked his disciples to back off in verses 6. And Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do for them, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, 
And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So if you look carefully at verses 6 and 7, Jesus is not saying that caring for the poor is un- unimportant, but that the poor is always with them, and they can care for the poor anytime they want. The opportunity will not go away. But for Jesus, they will not always have him with them. And Jesus goes on to make two important statements in verses 8 and 9. He said, she has done what she could with what she has for Jesus. And what she has, she has expensive perfume, and she lavished it generously on our Lord Jesus Christ. And little did she know, her pouring out for Jesus is in preparation of Jesus pouring out of himself for us. In fact, she was anointing him for his burial, whether knowingly or unknowingly. She's participating in a crucial aspect of the gospel. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, without Jesus' death, there will be no salvation. And without his burial, there will be no empty tomb. So his death is a redemptive act that will be proclaimed to all the world. And her devotion to Jesus will be told in memory of her. See, nothing poured on Jesus is ever wasted. And so now that brings us to our first reflection question. Is Jesus worth it? Is is he worth your time, your money, your devotion, your life? I would just like to highlight a positive example. I'm very encouraged by the dedication of our basic leaders to the Lord, you know, our youth leaders. Uh, We have, amongst our 60 over youth leaders, we have many who are doctors And oftentimes, they come straight from hospital after their overnight shift to serve at basic. We even have a chef who took a low-paying job that frees him up on Saturday evenings. And we have parents with young toddlers in tow. All of them commit themselves every Saturday to serve at basic as youth leaders. And guess what? We even have new leaders Students who forgo a place in an overseas university and choose to study locally so that they can commit the next 10 to 12 years of their lives to serve. Why? Because they think that Jesus is worth it and they love to teach our youth about him. And none of them, I believe none of them view their devotion to Jesus on Saturdays at basic as a waste of time. So parents, I'd like to encourage you, you know, is Jesus worth it? You know, sometimes some parents uh, think that their children's future and studies is more important than Jesus and might not uh, not encourage their their kids to attend uh, basic but I'd like to encourage your, uh, you to change your thinking that time uh, spent pour out on Jesus is never wasted. And if we conclude that Jesus is worth it, then the follow-up question would be, 
Do we seize every God-given opportunity to honour Him? Do we seize every God-given opportunity to honour Jesus? Okay, let me suggest the lowest hanging fruit first, okay? No, we thank God with that with the relaxation of uh, SMM rules and regulations, now we can gather uh, physically uh, without the different zones. And uh, we have also resumed Holy Communion and singing. And in two weeks' time, we will resume Children's Church. And DGs can also meet in groups of 10 at home. So let's seize the opportunity to come back to join us in worshipping God together as one body in Christ. Uh, to seize the opportunity to honour God by loving the body of Christ. To have real conversations with others, to fellowship and catch up on each other's life. I'm speaking more to those uh, who are watching online. And speaking of seizing opportunity to honour God, I know of a brother who was called home to the Lord just last month. Uh, some of you might know him, but many might not. His name is Birdie Chua. Birdie serves in our mercy ministry. He serves in our bus ministry. And he, was, he has the talent of playing the guitar and he sings really well. And often he, was, he would use his gift of music to lead the bus ministry, to lead mercy ministry, to sing praises to the Lord. Birdie would not miss an opportunity to pick up the guitar to sing praises to the Lord. And even in the face of death when he was facing a terminal uh, illness, he didn't wallow in self-pity. He made use of, the, of his last days on earth to point others to Jesus. And I learned from his wife, Nailui, that he has been calling and texting his friends to encourage them, sending them Bible verses. And one of his final text messages to me is this, Each day, living is his mercy and grace. Jesus is my only hope, physically and spiritually. I'm taking each day in his time. And a couple of days before Birdie was called home to the Lord, I was told that he, have, uh, he called his uh, three sons to meet him one-on-one -on -one to instruct them to continue to persevere and trust in the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we really do not know how much longer we have on earth. So may I encourage us to seek every opportunity to honour God wherever He pleases us. And you see that there are many unsung heroes, many unnamed, unknown heroes in church. There are many who serve behind the scenes faithfully. And guess what? Perhaps no one knows them. But our Lord Jesus Christ knows them by name. Our faithfulness doesn't just happen here on stage. It happens there, wherever you are, at home, at work. And in contrast to this unnamed woman's devotion to Jesus, verse 10 tells us, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the two of, went to the chief priests, in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, why did the chief priest need Judah's help? As mentioned in verses 1 and 2, they needed to avoid a public arrest of Jesus in broad daylight. So they needed an insider 
who could inform them of his movements, in particularly his whereabouts at night, so that they can arrest him in stealth. And you will notice from the passage that the chief priests didn't approach Judas. No, Judas went to them. Judas switched camp. He crossed over to the dark side with the sole intention of betraying his master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he provided them the perfect opportunity to arrest and kill Jesus. So, why did Judas betray Jesus? Doesn't he know how much Jesus loves him? Well, Mark didn't give us the reason. Although Matthew's gospel mentioned that Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And whatever the reason, Judas will be synonymous with being a traitor, the one who betrayed his friend to death. While the unnamed woman seized the opportunity to honour Jesus, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. Moving on in verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You notice the word uh, prepare for you, it's singular in Greek, meaning that the disciples offered to prepare the Passover meal for Jesus. But in reality, Jesus has already planned and prepared the Passover meal for them. You know, the Passover meal is a bit like our reunion dinner. You know? it's, the, it's an important feast that they cannot miss and often celebrated with families. So we see in verses 13 to 15, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Some commentators think that Jesus divinely predicts exactly what is going to happen as he sends his disciples out and things happen as he predicted. While others suggest that Jesus prearranged with the master of the house and the man carrying a jar of water as a sign to his disciples. Because in their culture, it is uncommon for men to carry water jars. But I think the main point is this, that Jesus views his disciples as family and includes them in his Passover meal. But the entire mood of the Passover meal is about to change. As Jesus told them a shocking news, that one of them will betray him. As his disciples reacted with grief and sadness and asked Jesus, is it I or in NIV, surely you don't mean me. The Greek wording expects a negative answer. So they expect Jesus to say, no, 
not you. But Jesus dropped the bombshell on them in verse 20. He said, it is one of the twelve, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. As they all dip their bread into a common sauce as they were sharing food. You know, I, I have a weird habit from young. Uh, I dislike saliva. Okay, so uh, when I was a child, whenever um, um, relatives or strangers kissed me, uh, once they move away, I would immediately wipe off the saliva from my face. Uh, and so my auntie would tease me uh, when I was in my teens. She asked me, uh, where then would you want your future girlfriend or wife to kiss you? I said, uh, my feet. And, and they told that to my wife the first time they met her. But, and thank God she still chose to marry me. <laughs> and I wouldn't drink from the cup if someone else has drank it. And even while I was serving my national service and dying of thirst because I ran out of water, and my kind army buddies offered me their bottles of water, uh, I would politely decline. And this remains true till this day. So don't offer me uh, any drink if you drank it before. <laughs> but I would share food and water with my immediate family, my wife and my two kids. And Jesus told them that someone whom he considers family will betray him. And at this very moment, you would expect Judas to break down and cry. After all, his plot to betray Jesus has been exposed. And this would be a golden opportunity to confess and repent. Isn't it? You know, sometimes when you caught, your, you, you caught your kids doing something naughty, then you ask, boy, who's the one who do this? Actually, you already know them, right? That's them. Then you will say, daddy, I'm so sorry. God, it's an opportunity to repent. But no, there's no such fairy tale ending for Judas. For Judas was banned on betraying Jesus. And Jesus pronounced that whatever happens to him as a result of the betrayer, is written in scriptures. But woe to the man who betrays him. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You know, being betrayed by a trusted friend is the worst kind of betrayer. And some of us would have experienced that. Being betrayed by your closest friend, perhaps the one whom you marry. And you know what I'm talking about. Yet, despite the treachery of his disciples, nothing, nothing is going to stop Jesus from having the Passover meal with them because he considers them family. And now at every Passover meal, there are a few must-haves. Bitter herbs, why? Because it symbolizes the bitterness of their life in bondage. Unleavened bread symbolizes the exodus as they leave Egypt in haste when the Lord rescues them. And of course, the all-important roasted lamb, the sacrificial lamb who died, whose blood was shed and smeared on the doorposts to save them. The point to note is that the Passover meal is not the redemption, but it 
points to the actual redemption of the Passover. And fathers, fathers would explain, explain the significance of the Passover to their, to their children. When, when the kids ask them, Daddy, why is this night different from the, uh, all the other nights? They're supposed to explain to the, to the kids that, uh, the significance of the Passover so that future generations will always remember God's faithfulness in rescuing them and that they are His covenantal people. And here in Mark 14, Jesus reenacts and institutes a new Passover meal for his disciples. And we notice that Jesus didn't go into such lengthy explanation. In verse 22, he simply took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Previously, the unleavened bread symbolize and anticipates the Lord's rescue of them, their exodus from out of Egypt. But now, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ. Although he didn't give an explanation for the bread, but the meaning is implied that they too can anticipate the Lord's rescue, a new exodus. And interestingly, the roasted lamb is not mentioned in verses 23 and 24. The lamb whose blood was vital for their salvation. But in its place, Jesus offers his blood as a sacrifice, represented by the common cup that he offers to his disciples. Where Jesus declared, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This alludes to another important Old Testament event. In Exodus 24, verse 8, the making of the Sinai Covenant, where blood was shed to seal the covenant to make Israel God's people. And so likewise, the new covenant will be seared by blood, the blood of Jesus. And this time, this includes many in verse 24. My blood, which, which is poured out for many. So, who are these many that Jesus is referring to in verse 24? Well, many could be referring to many people, which includes the Gentiles. But Jesus could also be alluding to an important passage, the one which we read earlier on in Isaiah uh, chapter 53, verse 12. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, referring to the suffering servant, okay? And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. If indeed Jesus is referring to Isaiah 53 verse 12, then the pouring out for many would include the many transgressors. Jesus is speaking about his vicarious death, that he's saying that he's dying on behalf of unworthy people so that they can become God's people. So the new Passover meal that Jesus is enacting points symbolically to the actual redemption that is to come 
it anticipates the Lord's rescue. And besides speaking about the cup of death in verse 24, Jesus speaks about another cup, a cup of future glory in verse 25, which he will drink when he comes again in the future to usher in the kingdom of God, signaling that he will emerge victorious over death. And, and after that, in 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus predicts that his disciples' loyalty to him will not stand up to the test. As soon as the shepherd is struck, the disciples will all fall away. They will scatter and will not stand by him. And although Jesus knew exactly what is going to happen before it happens, the pain of abandonment and dying alone is real. Just because you know something beforehand doesn't make it any less painful. I can tell it from my wisdom tooth extraction experience. I had one wisdom tooth extracted a long time ago, and when I was going for the second wisdom tooth extraction, I knew what the pain was, but it didn't make the pain any less. And I believe those who have uh, given birth to more than one kids can attest uh, to that as well, right, with regards to childbirth. Just because you know what is going to happen doesn't lessen the pain. But despite knowing that his friends will betray him and forsake him in his darkest moment, I found it amazing that Jesus spoke about forgiveness and reconciliation in verse 28, where he foresees that he will regather them again at Galilee after his resurrection. As I re was reading this passage, I was asking to myself, why Jesus would mention Galilee? What's the significance of Galilee? Well, we, if we recall many yawns ago, back in Mark chapter 1, Galilee was where Jesus first met them. Galilee was where he first called them to be his disciples. Galilee was where he first commissions them to ministry, to be fishers of men. So while in the midst of predicting their desertion of him, Jesus foretells a future reconciliation and recommissioning of his disciples. Isn't that amazing? And verse 29, But Peter said to Jesus, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Wow, what confidence from Peter, isn't it? Jesus makes a prediction and Peter predicts something else too. You know, Peter predicts that he will remain faithful to Jesus unto death. 
uh, despite Jesus predicts his disciples' unfaithfulness. Why such confidence from Peter? Well, after all, perhaps because he was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ. And he's also one of the only three disciples, along with James and John, who saw Jesus' uh, transfiguration. And surely, Peter is unlike the rest. He won't turn his back on Jesus. But Jesus knows Peter's heart better than him. As Jesus predicts that, that to the very second, the exact moment that Peter will deny him three times, that very moment is when the rooster crows a second time. And sadly, sadly Jesus will be proven right. All his disciples will desert him to die alone. They will all prove to be unworthy. And that, and that my friends, is how Mark 14 ends. Gospel lesson for us, I have two main ones for us. The first would be this, that Jesus didn't die for the worthy. He died for the unworthy. For at the Passover, just as God did not look inside the house to see who is worthy, but he looked at the blood on the doorpost, so also God does not look at our worthiness, but he looks at the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For no one, no one is worthy but Jesus alone. So friends, don't think too highly of ourselves and think that we are worthy. We are the faithful one. We will persevere with Jesus till the end. If his closest disciples would deny him and fall away, then what more about us? It is purely by grace that we are safe and that we are Christians here today. The next gospel lesson for us is that salvation is not anchored on the faithfulness of his disciples, but on the faithfulness of the Saviour. See, the Lord Jesus remains faithful to God's promise to rescue his people. And despite the unfaithfulness of his disciples, Jesus shows his devotion to his friends by pouring out his life for us. To put it simply, he died for his friends. No, sometimes in church, we don't have friends who die for us, but we have friends who makes us want to die. <laughs> there will be some who may discourage us with their words and actions. And friends, if you walk out of church, leave church, turn your back and never come back because you have been betrayed or hurt by other Christians, then it may not be Jesus that you worship in the first place. For Jesus will never forsake nor deny us. He's always our true and faithful friend. So if you have been hurt by others, which I won't be surprised some of us might, I would encourage you to focus on Jesus, the faithful ones, and find comfort in his words. And this coming Holy Week, as we celebrate perhaps one of the most important occasions on our calendar, 
Good Friday and Easter Sunday, let us reflect on this truth, on the death of Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for us to make us family. Let us honour him by giving him our undeserved devotion. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are good and faithful. Despite our unworthiness, you have still chosen to love us, chosen to us to be a child of yours. Father, we know that it is by your grace and your grace alone that we are safe. This Easter, this Good Friday, even as we reflect on how Jesus pours out his life for us, may we pour out our lives to him. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.